1: In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today.
2: Hey, I'm Julian Morgans, and you're listening to What It Was Like. The show that asks people who have lived through big, dramatic events, what it was like. Hello and happy Valentine's Day. Today is a special day, and not just for lovers, but for you, podcast listeners. Because as of today, we're officially a weekly show. You know how we usually publish a new app every couple of weeks, or just randomly whenever we feel like it? Well, we're going to stop being annoying, and as of today, we're bringing you a new story every week. That's once a week, every week. So hit subscribe, or just keep coming back here, and you'll find some new apps. Okay, so like I was saying, Valentine's Day. I've always wanted to do a love story on this show, and I was recently looking around for a story that, that felt right. Uh, And and somehow I found myself thinking about Roberta Williams. And for listeners who don't know Roberta, she was married to Carl Williams, and in the late 90s and early 2000s, Carl Williams was Australia's most famous drug baron. Here's here's the background. Carl was born in 1970, and he grew up in Melbourne's western suburbs. He left school in year 11, and he did some odd jobs. He worked as a labourer until he slid into the drugs trade alongside his dad, George, and by all accounts, they did pretty well. And in November 1999, the two of them were arrested at a property owned by his dad in Broadmeadows. The newspapers from this time report that the police confiscated around 30,000 amphetamine tablets worth $20 million. Uh, although, I was thinking about this, and I, and I sort of crunched the numbers. And I want to point out that that kind of doesn't make sense, because it would have meant that the Williamses were trying to sell their pills for over $600 a pop. But anyway, I digress. This was the event that first really landed the Williamses in the paper, and it put Carl at the center of Australia's narcotic universe. And I actually have this memory from around this time. I think it would have been around two thousand and three, two thousand and four, and I remember this guy at, at school, and um, and he was bragging about how he could get everyone these high grade Carl Williams pills for schoolies. Uh, and, I, and I, you know, I have no way of verifying whether that was true, um, but I'm just illustrating what that name meant at that time, and how for the average party-goer who was doing uh, 48-hour benders at revs, Carl was the man. In the end, though, it was his proclavity for murdering business rivals, and not drugs, that landed him in jail. Between 2000 and 2004, Carl Williams ordered hits on four underworld figures, for which he was later charged with the murders of three. In 2007, he was sentenced to life imprisonment, with a non-parole period of 35 years, of which he only survived three. On the 19th of April, 2010, Carl was working out in a prison gym when he was beaten over the head with a metal seat stem from an exercise bike. He died at the age of 39, leaving behind a nine-year-old daughter and his wife, Roberta. For most Australians, I think that's where the story ended. And that was the case for me too, until last year when I was scrolling Instagram and I stumbled upon this this, uh, this post that the algorithm had stuck into my feed. And it was a tribute that Roberta had posted to Carl for his birthday. And I found it kind of moving. It was, a, it was a video of Carl and Roberta on their wedding day, and it was VHS footage, and Carl was sporting this kind of like parted down the middle 90s haircut. And it was, you know, it was just very 90s and, and very cool. And here's the caption, and I'm just going to read it out. Today, you would have been 53. How I would have loved to see you now at this time in life, being a dad, a best friend, a co-pilot through life with our precious daughter, just everything about you, getting older. As another year passes and time gets away from us, I always find time to speak of how amazing you were, and for as long as I breathe, I will do that to keep you alive. Today is a day we will celebrate you and how truly amazing you really were. Happy Heavenly Birthday, Carlos. Shine bright like a diamond. So recently when I was looking for stories, I thought back to this post, and I thought to myself, you know, there's a love story that's never been told. I mean, I've seen Underbelly, I think, I think a lot of you have, and, uh, and I remember enough of the Melbourne gangland killings when they're actually happening to, to feel as though I, I got the sort of general shape of Carl's story. But then when I saw this post on Instagram, it was like peering through this, this tiny little window into someone else's world, someone else's marriage. And I think it's a story that we've all seen on TV, you know, the the story of a crime boss's marriage. Uh, Specifically, I'm thinking of The Sopranos. But what's that world really like? So I hit up Roberta, and she agreed to tell me her story. So that's what we're going to do today. It's the inside story of how Roberta and Carl met, what drew them together, and what kept them together for over a decade, and what their lives were like as husband and wife. So, from the start to the end... Here's Roberta Williams on love for a special Valentine's edition of What It Was Like. Roberta, welcome to the show.
3: Thank you, Julian. I'm happy to be here.
2: So I want to talk to you about your marriage, about your, you know, about, about love. But first up, I just want to set the scene. Can you give me a bit of a sense about, uh, you know, your upbringing? Uh, did you always live in Melbourne? Sort of talk me through it a bit. So
3: I was um, born in Melbourne. Um, yep. My parents lived in Broadmeadows, ironically, when I was born. My dad was a interstate truck driver. My mum was a stay-at-home mum. When I was eight months old, my dad was killed by a careless driver on the road. Once my dad died, my mum took on various partners who used to abuse me. Um, and then I was thrown on the street at nine years old um, to just fend for myself, basically. I was made a ward of the state at 11 and just in and out of institutions from 11 years old.
2: It sounds, it sounds hard. It, it sounds like you, yeah. you, you weren't born with any advantages. You, <laughs> you did it hard.
3: Disadvantage after disadvantage, I say. Um,
2: so at the point where you met Carl Williams... Tell me about what was happening in your life at the time
3: I was in an abusive marriage um, had three small children. That's when Carl sort of came along and said, "You know I'm not going to leave you and your children out in the cold um i'll I'll help you as much as i can so let's
2: um, let's let's slow it down let's let's get into that yeah, in a moment. yeah, just tell me about the very first time that you Met Carl. You know, I'm imagining that you saw him across a crowded room. You know, tell me, set the scene. <laughs> tell me about that moment.
3: Uh, okay. So, Carl actually was friends of my sister's. And um, I w- liked him so much. Like, he was just such a great bloke that I wanted him in our family so bad. So, I tried to actually get my sister with him. Um, and she said, no, thank you. You know, he's not my type. I don't want Carl, this, that, the other. And I was devastated. So we became good friends. And as I said, like he helped me through the hardest times of my life and we kind of built our relationship from there. And you know, your bond sort of forms and then the love grows and, and then, you know, the rest is history, I guess.
2: Yeah, yeah. So, what was uh, did he? You know, did he proposition you, or did you talk to him? How did it? Well, I was was I was kind
3: of pushy. I was a little bit pushy, and he was a little bit standoffish, because he knew my first husband. Um, Yeah, but we were we were really good friends to start with, and that really attracted me to him too, because he was so gentle and soft and kind, and I'd never endured that so. Mm, that was a okay. big deal for me, yeah.
2: When you first met Carl, what what did he say he was doing for work?
3: He didn't never said anything. I just kind of got the gist of things, and and not, you didn't really talk about that.
2: Yeah, yeah. I yeah. mean, I, I mean, I think I think that detail is interesting because it yeah. feels to me like in regular kind of civilian life uh when two people meet for the first time they're like oh what do you do for work yeah oh, do what do this. you
3: well yeah. i i even do that now like i'll meet somebody and say oh where do you live what do you do for work you know yeah. i do that so yes so right but kind but... of when you're living in that world it's kind of not something you do ask questions
2: yeah you don't you don't ask questions about what's your occupation
3: yeah because you just don't know what the answer's going to be <laughs> Whether you're gonna to get told to f off or mind your own business, or are you a police officer or you're just being a sticky beak, so
2: did you know that that was the uh, i guess like the the social code via your earlier experiences growing up?
3: yeah, I was raised in that world, Julian you know I was on the street like I said from nine years old, I kind of knew the law of the business, I guess. In that sort of world, you kind of know you don't talk to the police. You don't um, ask people questions. You you don't butt in people's business. You don't repeat things you hear. You know, just the normal things that belong in a criminal world, I guess. Yeah.
2: I mean, Carl was a bad boy and that's, that's pretty cool, right?
3: Kind of in a way, yeah, because you like the cool, I like a cool kind of guy who's got a bit of power. Um, and in saying that people are going to criticize me for that, but I don't care. We, we've all got our, I like that type of guy or that type of girl. Um, I like somebody who's in a bit of, got a bit of power. Um, that's just me because I'm a, that sort of person. So yeah.
2: Yeah. I- I don't know. I, I think a lot of people find power pretty hot. Okay. Um so tell me about your first date. Uh did you guys go to a restaurant or was it a
3: No, we we weren't like that. So we're all I I went away and um I went on my own and he just I heard a knock on the door at my hotel and there he was standing there. And um yeah, our romance just sort of started from there. He was so cute standing there with this backpack on his back and um yeah, we just started our romance I guess from then. Yeah, and he was really gentle kind of person and I'd never dealt with gentle before and you know, so it was really lovely.
2: Um okay, so you guys you guys got married in 2001. Uh, can you tell me how he proposed?
3: Um, Carl just walked in the bathroom one night. I was in the bath and he put a engagement ring on the side of the bath and said, there you go, we're getting married. I didn't expect it because I really didn't expect Carl to be the marrying kind of guy. I just didn't expect him to be that type of guy. So, um, yeah, he, um, he did surprise me, yes. And... Um, Because I was pregnant with Dakota, things had to move quite quickly because, as I said, he wanted my dreams to come true. So he wanted me to um, be married before I gave birth. Um, So, yeah, we got married um, the 14th of January, 2001, and Dakota was born the 10th of March, 2001. And then we... um, yeah. And then we'd, we'd bought our house prior. Um, we bought this huge, beautiful home.
2: Tell me, uh, tell me about the house. Can you describe it?
3: Okay. So the house was about seven bedrooms, one, two, four bathrooms, I think. Um, huge swimming pool with a big waterfall out the back. Um, balconies off the back, you know, rooms and stuff. Um, like, the main bedroom, the bathroom was as big as somebody's landroom, kitchen area, basically. It was huge. There was a sauna, um, spa, shower, double bathroom, double um, tap, uh, sinks and stuff like that. Yeah, beautiful home. Absolutely beautiful, like a windy staircase. Um, beautiful home, yeah.
2: Nice, nice. All right, so so I want to talk about just like what, like a normal – Day would look like. I mean, can you can you describe a, an average day in the in the Williams household?
3: Carl would get up in the morning. His dad would pick him up. Um, I would get up and get the kids ready for school. So Carl put all my children through private school. Um, they went to an elite private school in Melbourne. So I would get up, get the children ready for school, drop them off, come home. Carl's dad would pick him up. He'd go out, do whatever he did for the day and come home.
2: And did he work from, a, from an office or was it? Um...
3: No, nah, just the streets were his office, I guess. <laughs> yeah.
2: And you were a? Um...
3: Stay at home mum, yeah.
2: Right, okay. And, and what, what did you do during the day?
3: I'd go shopping. I'd love shopping. I used to love buying my children clothes and stuff like that. So I'd go shopping. I used to travel a lot. So I'd travel all over the world go out we'd go out for dinner nearly every night um yeah just uh, to me that the normal stuff you know but to other people it'd be like wow oh my god you know i'd die to have a life like that
2: was carl would you say that carl was good with the kids
3: amazing absolutely amazing there was not a moment where they weren't happy in their life with carl um He'd do normal stuff, like, you know, take them out for the day. We'd go away on Queensland holidays. He'd take them shopping. They could have anything they wanted. Um, he was always there to do homework and stuff with them. Just n- like a normal, everyday dad. Yeah.
2: Was he ever silly with them? Like, would he uh, would he do dress-ups or, or, I don't know, build cubbies?
3: Oh, he was just stupid all the time, like he'd... He'd change the words to songs. Um, you know, um, like he'd sing, I don't know what the song is, but he'd sing, um, I'm old, but you're young. I'm cool and you're not. I'm cute and you're sweet and, you know, things like that. So the kids would be in hysterics laughing at things like that, you know? So he'd be so silly. Um, Christmas time, he'd be just so fun with the kids. Like, I, one time, I remember we bought them a big, or Dakota, a cubby house, and um, he was hiding in the cubby house. So when she poked her head in the window, he'd jump up, and you know she'd fall on the ground laughing. And you know anything he did was funny in the kids' eyes. You know,
2: I just think it's so it's so interesting that you're you're describing him like this really fun, wholesome dad, who also happened to be you know kind of a badass um i mean all right so so let's so you got the wholesome side uh let's let's just talk about the 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 less wholesome side um you guys were making a ton of money at that time right
3: yeah plenty of money millions millions julian millions of dollars yeah
2: would you would you have a look at the account and be like oh wow we've got um We've got $100 million.
3: It wasn't in the bank account, Julian. It was always cash money. (laughs) It wasn't like you could put money in the bank and, you know, where would you justify that type of money?
2: Can I ask? Where did did you guys keep all your cash?
3: So I would have one place that there was always a million dollars in money that I could go to if ever the police raided our house. And they took all our assets and seized everything and I had no access to anything. There was always that money there that I could go to that I could live off, you know, for groceries and mortgages and things like that. Um, and then other millions would be out with people, I guess on, on credit from, you know, what they owed Carl money, other money he would have put away in other places. You know, like they say, you don't put all your eggs in one basket,
2: so you'd always so you'd always be carrying around what like a like a suitcase full of cash?
3: No, no, not kind of like that but um i'd I'd go away on holidays and i'd I'd spend sh- shitloads of money and Carl to be cheeky would say, okay, that's it. you're on a three thousand dollar limit today." You're not um, spending any more money, and I'd just go mad about that, and he'd end up giving in after a day or so, and you know. But um, I remember once I went to France and I spent like fifty thousand dollars in the first day I was there, and um, he said um, to be smart. That's it. You're on a three thousand dollar limit. I'm not putting any more money into your account. You can live off three thousand dollars a day.
2: Three thousand a day. I think I'd be able to make that work?
3: I couldn't at that time. <laughs> um, especially when you've got a daughter that you're paying $85 for a pair of socks for. Um, $3,000 doesn't go far.
2: That's there's some expensive socks.
3: They were. She lived, uh, all her clothes were from France. Everything she had, yeah, everything she wore.
2: Okay. Tell me, what was the single most extravagant thing you did at the, at the peak of your wealth?
3: My daughter's baptism. Dakota's baptism cost me over $150,000.
2: Wow. Give me some details.
3: Um, we had Vanessa Amorosi do a concert at her baptism because she was the in thing. Then I had, um, Brian cad come. I flew him in to sing little Ray of sunshine for Dakota. Um, I wasn't going to have any secondhand, you know, song just played for her. So I flew in the actual singer. So, you know, we had bottles of whiskey. Is it whiskey? Whatever it was on the table with $500 or more a bottle. Back then, 20-something years ago, big deal. Dakota was given like, you know, it was nothing for somebody to give her an f- envelope with $50,000 in it.
2: And and how does she feel uh, looking back at that stuff?
3: She she doesn't remember any of those days. She she never lived the lifestyle. Her dad was arrested when she was three. So Dakota never lived the life with Carl. The older kids did. Um, getting Rolex watches for their birthday was like other kids getting a $100 gift voucher. You know, it was nothing to my kids to get that. Um, a Rolex watch for a tenth birthday or something, um, you know, things like that. Um, driving around in the best cars, um, you know, being going into Louis Vuitton and buying a handbag like somebody going into Meijer and buying a fifty dollars handbag. Um, my kids had the best of everything. I'm, I'm not bragging and saying that. I'm just merely, you know, explaining our lifestyle.
2: When you, um, when you look. Back at this life, because I'm—I mean, I understand that your world's changed a lot since then. Uh, You know, the police confiscated your stuff. Does it make you feel sad that you no longer live like that?
3: No, I think I—I've got memories, which is all I have now to hang on to. Um, and just look back and think, well, though we had fun, um, in the short time Carl had on this earth, um, thirty-nine years, at least I can say had a good good time.
2: So during this time, when you had all of these millions of dollars coming in, you'd you'd never talk to Carl about where the money was, was actually coming from?
3: No. It's not like you don't know what's going on. Yeah, you just don't go and say, what did you do today? Or, you know, what did you sell today? Or how much money did you make today? No, it was just questions you would not ask. Um, in our world, um, you'd be called a gig.
2: Sorry, gig? Like, G G I G
3: gig, um, and you definitely don't want to be a gig because being a gig is like, why do you want to know information about that? Where are you? Where are you taking it to? Like, why would you want to know unless you're going to transport it to the police station or somewhere else? Like, wh- why do you want to know? There's no need to know.
2: Okay, so what sort of stuff would you guys talk about?
3: Well, for example, when I was pregnant with Dakota every single night without fail, we would sit in her nursery. Carl would lay on the floor with his hands behind his head. I'd sit in the feeding chair and we'd discuss our child, you know, because we didn't find out whether we were having a boy or a girl. Um, We were quite excited about what our child was going to be. And we would talk about, you know, oh my God, if we have a boy, what will he be like? Or, you know, if it's a little girl, I know you're going to treat her like a princess and you know, she's going to be walking into Louis Vuitton before she can even stand up, and you know things like that.
2: Yeah, that's that's really sweet. Um, okay, so so as you know, this is a, an episode for Valentine's, and I'm wondering if uh, Valentine's was a was a big deal in your house. Um, uh, I mean, how would how would Carl mark the occasion?
3: Always bought me flowers. Always bought me gifts. Um, yeah, that was just something that he never missed. Like and I remember it was always one florist that he used um on Killer Road in Nidri. Um he always used the same florist and um yeah, so he'd always send beautiful flowers, always.
2: What was the single most romantic thing that you guys ever did on Valentine's?
3: Him and I went to Sydney once and um, we just, him and I, and we just kind of spent a lot of time together just in the hotel, going out to the casino, having dinner together, just being normal, just no one else around, like no criminality, no other, you know, people that he did business with, um, no one like that. We just shared just normal, loving moments together, um, like a normal couple. Yeah, it was just lovely.
2: I'm just going to go out on a bit of a limb asking this question, but uh, did you guys enjoy a wild sex life?
3: We did sometimes. Yes, we did. (laughs) We did. I'm quite a nervous, shy, nerdy type person when it comes to that. So, yeah, I wasn't one of those people who would – do over-the top things but he had plenty of other girls who would do things that I definitely would not
2: oh, he was he was having some affairs
3: uh, yeah he had lots of lots of girls that I didn't know about until Carl passed away only one girl that he had a relationship for for a, quite a long time um, behind my back which um, he continuously said he wasn't seeing her which I believed. And then um, when he passed away, I found things in his mail or his paperwork and stuff that made me realise that it was still ongoing. Yeah. And he did say that um, in one of his letters that um the hardest thing he had to deal with was doing the wrong thing by me. That was the hardest thing in life he ever had to deal with and the mo- the biggest regret he had was um playing up on me i guess you could call it yeah
2: i mean despite that it seems it seems like you guys had a genuinely great connection
3: we did we ha- we had an amazing bond i can say that in all honesty um yeah
2: that must have been hard to learn that stuff um i want to i want to do a bit of a scene change here um and i want to I want to ask you would you say that you believe in love?
3: I do. Yes.
2: And do you believe in um you know the idea of like the one?
3: Yes, I do. Yeah.
2: And and for you, do you think Carl was your one?
3: Yes, I do.
2: Okay. Tell me tell me more about that.
3: Okay. I get a bit emotional. Um because he pulled me out of such a horrible situation um and I for the first time in my life, had somebody to lean on. Um, And he was, I always say, he was always there to catch me when I fell. Like I could fall back and know that he was always going to catch me without fail. He was always there. So he was just that person who I could solely rely on, Um, just loved with everything inside me. Yeah.
2: And what do you think that you offered him?
3: He could count on me the same. He always knew I was there for him by his side. And he always said I was the greatest mother and the best choice he could have ever made to parent his child. Yeah. And I remember when we were trying to fall pregnant with Dakota, um, I had a lot of trouble. Um, we were starting an IVF cycle. And, um, I remember when I thought I was pregnant and, um, we, We were driving through. I'll never forget. We were driving through the McDonald's drive-through. How romantic! And um, he, um, we got the results back that we weren't pregnant. And he threw his can, his uh, cup of Fanta, and it actually landed in the rubbish bin. And it was so funny. Like it was just that moment where he was so annoyed, and he threw this drink, and it landed in the bin. Um, it was funny and we laughed about it later on. But um, so it took us quite a while. Um, I had a huge operation um, to try and conceive, um, which after the surgery we had to try virtually straight away to conceive. Um, I was covered in stitches in my stomach, but the doctor said, you know, this is your only chance you're going to get. And um, so we... Fell pregnant, ironically, virtually straight away. Um, he was over the moon, like just absolutely over the moon. I believe Dakota was his first love um, and he would never love like he loved her. It was just so beautiful to see, you know, and to see him grabbing this baby that we thought he would never hold. And just cradling her and being so gentle with her was just such a beautiful, beautiful moment, you know?
2: Hey, we're just going to stop here for a quick ad break, but stick around. We'll be right back with more What It Was Like. I want to talk about um I want to talk about values for a moment, okay? And um and I guess I'm asking because I think a lot of our listeners uh would be like, well, Carl sounds like he was like a nice guy at home, but um the fact is that at work he was having people murdered. Um and I think for a lot of listeners, well, just people in general, uh homicide is a bit of a deal breaker. You know, it goes against their values and they would struggle to to marry someone who was embracing murder um but it didn't seem to go against your values so um i don't know just talk about that how did how did carl's values sit with yours
3: yeah it didn't sit well with me after i found out like all these things now um i'm not prepared to sit there and say what a horrible person he was um for doing whatever um to me, some situations were kill or be killed. Um, and then other situations I, I don't know much about. So, like, people have told me certain things to do with certain things and I say, oh, my God, really? How did you know that? You know, it shocked me because, to me, I don't believe anyone should lose their life. So things that were hidden from me and the more that was hidden from me was better for him.
2: Did you ever think about where all the money was coming from and, and feel bad about it?
3: When, you, when you're in the moment, you don't think about that. Um, like you can look at it from different angles. Like when you're in the moment of somebody having an affair, for example, behind their wife's back, they're not thinking of their wife or they're having sex with their mistress. So I'm not thinking of where the money's coming from when I'm spending it. If that makes sense, do you know what I mean? Um, I'm just clearly saying that I'm not sitting there thinking, "Oh my God, okay, well, this seven thousand dollars is a is a uh, an ounce of cocaine, or um, you know, an ounce of amphetamines, or you know, I didn't think like that." No.
2: How do you um How do you feel about drugs?
3: I hate I hate them. They've just destroyed, and I, I people don't get. How many family members of mine have been destroyed from drugs? My brother, my brother's a heroin addict. I had a great bond with my brother and it's gone now. My brother's gone virtually. You know, they're not that person anymore. That breaks my heart. Um, Carl's brother was um, died from a drug overdose. Um, my sister's a drug addict. Um, you know, so many... People in my life have been destroyed through drugs, so I hate them.
2: Yeah, yeah, but I, but I guess drugs, drugs made you guys a lot of money, which made, you know, made life pretty comfortable
3: at the time. At the time, Julian. But looking back now, I'd give it all up in a heartbeat to have everything back. Um, I say I'd live in a tent on the side of the road. To get my life back and give all that back, um, it, money doesn't make your life better. It actually destroys you.
2: Um, I mean, I mean, back when Cull was selling drugs, uh, were you happy?
3: I wouldn't say I was happy. I was comfortable, but I wasn't happy. No.
2: And what what stood between you and happiness?
3: The fact that. Your husband's going to prison any minute or the police are going to knock on your door or they're going to take everything you have in a heartbeat, whereas if you're working a nine-to-five job, they're not going to knock on your door, are they, and take your car or your home or your furniture or your bank balance. You don't have that sitting on your shoulder, whereas that's a hard and and a heavy load to carry.
2: Did you manage to sleep?
3: Not really. I always stressed. I always worried. When Carl never answered his phone, I used to panic. Is he dead? Is he arrested? What's happened? It was always fear. I mean, people might look at the fun side of going shopping and spending money and having all the benefits of these things, but way up the, the stress that you go through. You know, the scales are unbalanced heavily.
2: Yeah. I don't know if you use TikTok, but um so the mob boss wife is a fashion aesthetic that's that's trending on TikTok at the moment. And all of these people, all these these young women, they're dressing up in like big sunglasses and and fur.
3: Yeah, I didn't know about that.
2: <laughs> what do you think of that?
3: I find it really crazy because I'd like to get across to these girls that it's all it looks all glamorous. But when you're being ripped out of bed at 6 o'clock in the morning and dragged at your front door and there's a mob of media, so we'll call it the media mob. The media mob isn't a fun thing to walk out your door where you've got handcuffs on and you're being dragged out and you're not looking your most glamorous. Um, you know, I, I don't see any humour in that, no. no. I see young, young, stupid girls thinking that it's all fun and games until they're actually in the middle of it and they can clearly see what it's all about. And I can tell you now, there's no glamour in it, I should say. No glamour in it at all.
2: So you said earlier that you were attracted to Carl's bad boy image. But um, I'm wondering, as as uh, like your relationship went on, did the bad boy thing get a, get a bit old?
3: Yes, and it kind of got a bit boring and it kind of got a bit annoying and it kind of got a bit... Out of hand, in the sense that these girls who are on TikTok are the ones who attract, who are attracted to men like Carl, and they don't care whether they've got a wedding ring on their finger. They just like the bad boy, and they don't care about the wife sitting at home with the three and four and five kids. They just want the bad boy experience, and then they move on.
2: Okay, let's let's move forward. Can you tell me about the day Carl was arrested?
3: The day Carl was arrested was the 4th of June, 2004. I'll never forget that day. Him and my son were at the, our apartment. Um, I got a phone call. Um, he'd been arrested. Um, none of us knew about Lawyer X back then, so no one knew that she was, you know, behind it all. So we automatically thought that Carl would get bail. This would be just another stitch up and he'd come home. Um, wasn't, and that was the day our lives kind of fell apart when we knew, we knew he wasn't coming home.
2: How did you respond?
3: I kind of fell to pieces, I guess you could say. Um, I never wanted to change my bedding on my bed because I knew that was the last time, you know, he would have ever slept in our bed and the last time he ever would. Um, I wanted to hang on to every memory we had together in our home, and he never came home after that, so... Um, yeah, our world kind of fell apart then. There was a lot of court cases, um, a lot of madness, um, visiting him five days a week in prison. Then the, um, Piranha task force told the, um, uh, prison officers to pump up the heat with me and give me grief when I went in there to visit, um, was a nightmare. Um, so, you know, like every time I'd go to visit, they'd say they detected cocaine on my clothing, um, through the detector you'd go through and I'd ask them to put me through again because I know I didn't have drugs on my clothing, but they wouldn't allow us to go through because they couldn't make it beep again the second time or, you know, they just wanted to make a drama. Um, so they'd give us a box visit because on the box visit, they had it all mic'd up and there was cameras in there and stuff and they could hear everything we'd say. So they'd make our lives difficult so that they could put us in a box visit. Um, you know, things like that were just a nightmare. Um, so life was just hell during that period.
2: Were you angry at him?
3: Of course I was furious because my children were enduring the worst, worst things they could ever endure. Um, We were on the front page of the paper every day. There was media camped virtually outside our house. Everything we did was reported in the newspaper or the news. How did Carl handle prison? He was fine. He was fine. Everyone loved him. Um, You know, everyone thought he was king shit, Um, you know, the drug king. Yeah, the drug kingpin of Australia was, you know, in jail and whatever, and everyone just thought he. The amount of mail he received, Julian, was I'm not kidding you, buckets and buckets of mail daily from who? From a, fans, fans. Yeah, wow.
2: You guys are really famous.
3: Well, they called us the kings, king and queen of the underworld back then. Yeah, we were famous. Um, I say infamous, people say, no, you weren't, you were famous. Um, yeah, it was crazy. It was crazy for me growing up from where I came from to then be stopped on the street and be asked for an autograph or a photo with somebody or, you know, oh, my God, you two guys are amazing, the king and queen of the underworld. You know, it was madness. So it was crazy.
2: Did you enjoy the attention?
3: Back then it was a little bit fun, but when I look back now, it was crazy.
2: I think it was about this period, maybe like, I don't know, 2007, 2008, uh, that Underbelly came out, which of course was the TV adaptation of of your and Carl's story. What do you think of that?
3: Yeah. Well, that kind of skyrocketed us to fame. Show like every magazine in Australia wanted me, every TV network wanted me, every book company wanted me. Um, it was crazy, you know. Um, I often say I'm at my loneliest in a room full of people because they're only there because if I wasn't me, they wouldn't be there. They're not there because they're your best friend, they're there because they want to hear the gangster side or the criminal side of, of your life. Um, which kind of makes you a little bit annoyed and sick at the same time. Um, you know, you've got to deal with the shit side of it too. And and then, you know, the end the end chapter, which we all know how it ended, don't we?
2: Yeah. Yeah, I can imagine. And and you actually appeared on Underbelly. You were played by an actress.
3: Yep, Cat Stewart.
2: Yeah. What did you think of her performance?
3: So she was given a role to play. And I just thought, at first I was really angry about the way I was portrayed because it was totally opposite to me. I, I would never do anything of what she did. Definitely, yeah. I was mortified. I was throwing things at the TV. I was going mad. I was, yeah, it was really bad to see. But I had to watch it because I wanted to see what the whole world was watching. Yeah. Because,
2: oh, so you watched, you watched the whole series? Yeah
3: because it hit the UK. Wow. I've got fans in Scotland, UK, New Zealand, all over the world who have watched it.
2: Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I can imagine. Yeah. And how did you how did you feel about the show's depiction of Carl?
3: Hated it. It was horrible. It was so far from Carl. That guy was such a stupid person. Yeah. So ridiculous. Was Carl smart? Yes. Yeah. yeah. A really smart, Tell me mo- smart person. Like I say he could have been a he could have been a chemist of anything had he wanted to have been. He was so smart.
2: So okay. So you guys are at the height of your fame. You're trying to maintain this relationship. Yeah. Uh I mean, we're on the subject of Valentine's here. Do you do you recall any uh Valentine's days in prison?
3: Yeah, I got beautiful card from him. Um the Girl, he always sent the kids Valentine's Day cards because we have three daughters. Um, one, of course, Dakota, but two my ch- not Carl's biological, but he loved them like his own. Um, so everyone would receive flowers and Valentine's Day cards. Um, yeah, there was not a time he'd miss Valentine's Day. He, I think, he liked it more than the women did. He loved it. <laughs> <laughs> He loved That's Valentine's sweet. Day, yeah.
2: I want to talk about how it ended. Could could you tell me, run me through from the moment you woke up, the, the day that Carl died?
3: Uh, I was doing a magazine shoot for a magazine that um, wanted to talk about my illness that had consumed my life for quite a period of time. And um, so Carl called. I got up. I got the kids to school. And then Carl had called and um, I said to have to say to him, look, Carl, we can only talk one call because I've got to get to the hotel to do this magazine shoot. Me not knowing it would be the last time I'd hear his voice um, or I would have sat on the phone for a hundred calls. So I said after the first call, look, Carl, I've got to go. And I kind of got a bit grumpy because Carl's not the sort of person that he, he'll he just keep talking. um. And I'm saying, you know, I've got to go, I've got to go, whatever, whatever. Um. And then finally I got off the phone. I got ready for the shoot. Um, we'd finished the photo shoot side of it and Rob, my son's dad, went outside and took a phone call and he came, he was bashing on the door. And I was a little bit embarrassed that he was bashing on the door so violently. But And I was thinking, what are you doing? Like, we're in the middle of the medias here. You're bashing on the door. It's embarrassing. What are you doing this for? Like, normally he would never do that. So somebody um, opened the door and he walked in. And you know that saying where people say, oh, my God, you look like somebody just died? I've never mm, seen yeah. it in my life. And now I know why people use that expression. And he said, "Bert, Bert, they're saying Carl's been killed." And I just couldn't believe it; just could not believe it. So I, um, I started ringing up the prison. Um, I, I just didn't know what to do. I, I hadn't been told by anyone. And then like the media was ringing my phone and the phones were going crazy. And I think I rang Barwon about 14 times and they just kept hanging up on me. They wouldn't even talk to me. Nobody would tell me what was going on. And, and then it was just plastered everywhere. Um, so then I the first thing I thought of was my children because I thought, who's done this? I don't know whether it's, you know, they're coming for us next. What's going to happen? Um And um so I rang the school and they already knew, like, before we did. And I said, just keep my baby safe until I get there. And um I got to Dakota School and I just collapsed virtually against the wall I didn't know what what was I going to do like how am I going to get through this and um, when I walked into the office the principal came and she really hugged me and um, then I looked and there was a psychologist in the other room and then little Dakota comes up with this big smile on her face and she was thinking she was getting picked up from school early so she was excited but when I looked at her, all I seen was her dad was just freaking me out, like, you know. Um, and I'm thinking, how am I going to do this? Like, so prior to that, the psychologist said to me, take her to a safe place and tell her the best way you know how. And I'm thinking to myself, the best way I know how, like I've done this a 100 times, told my child that her father's just been murdered. So, um, yeah, like um, we drove to Essendon, past our Essendon house. There was live to air. There was media like you would not believe. Then we drove to our Taylor's Lakes house. I I can't even remember the drive there. Um, And I took Dakota up to her bedroom and I just couldn't look at her. She... Looks so much like her dad. I just couldn't look at her. And um, I just said to her, um, you know, how nana's in heaven. Um, she wanted daddy back and she's taken dad with her. Daddy's in heaven now. Um, and then I just collapsed. I just just fell apart. I just don't even remember anything from then. And my little boy's dad just came in and took over and it was just the worst day of my life yeah it was just like terrible so terrible and especially for a little girl like she said my dad not my dad like she couldn't believe it couldn't believe it um like he used to write her beautiful cards like you know telling her how much he loved her and just all just beautiful like he was just so loving you know just a heart of gold, and it was just really sad that his demise was so horrific. You know.
2: Ah, oh, Roberta, that's awful. Do you do you still get upset, or do you feel upset thinking about
3: this? Yeah, and I, I I still don't know how I got through. I still don't know how I get through. But um, I my son, my little boy, who's got a disability, he's got autism. He can't he can't talk. He gets me through a little um, and Coda gets me through a little. So them two together, you know, get me through a lot. I have my days. But his love was amazing. Um, he just showed me love that I never knew existed, you know.
2: So big big question here, but do you feel like Carl showed you what, what love could be?
3: Yes, I never knew love. And like I said, until I held my son in my arms and then when Carl showed me what love was,
2: so I think there'll probably a there'll probably be a few cynics who are listening to this, thinking that I don't know, like Carl got what he deserved. Um, what's the saying that you um you live by the sword,
3: die by the sword. I'm sick of hearing that saying. Oh my god.
2: So what do you make of that?
3: I I say I I'm definitely not going to hate on somebody I don't know, but I believe jealousy brings all that in because. I, I'm not sure that one of them would give up living a millionaire lifestyle, no matter what it took. Um, I, I don't believe if somebody was offered that, they'd knock it back. Very few, you know, so they can, they can comment and all they like. But in saying that, like I said, um, if, if somebody was to hand them a million dollars, I don't anticipate that us where it came from. You know or if their husband came home with a million dollars do you really think many women would ask where it came from or would they be buying the first handbag pair of shoes and outfit to go with it
2: would you say would you say Carl was a good man
3: I believe he was a good man oh, and in saying that I've often said and I've heard throughout many court cases that to actually commit the crime or to organize the crime are two totally different things if that makes sense. So to actually do the crime is one thing, but to say to somebody, Oh, you know, or, make, organize something and you go and do it. It's, it's like it's, I'm not making excuses, but you're saying something, organizing for somebody to do something and they go and do it. But it's not actually you doing the crime. Although you're more responsible than the person who did the crime because you organized it, but. The, you know, that's the way I try and see things and try and understand it in my head.
2: So I guess it's been, what, 14, 14 years this year since Carl died. Um, when you miss him, what's the thing that you think about?
3: Us as a family unit. That gets me a bit sad because I, I, I picture him at home with Dakota and us as a as a family, you know, like how she'd be with him now or how we'd be now together as a family.
2: Is there a particular image that comes to your mind?
3: The day I had her, how happy he was. I was the happiest I've ever seen him. Yeah.
2: Do you have any reoccurring dreams about Carl?
3: Yes. I don't dream often. The post-traumatic stress takes my dreams away, but I've dreamt a few times um, that he comes up to me on the couch and says, everything's going to be Okay. And that was Carl's greatest saying. He always used to say to me, everything's going to be okay. I wish I could keep that dream going because he's there.
2: Yeah, that sucks. And I can imagine that as the dream is slipping away, you're like, no, 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 keep going, keep going. No, come back, come back.
3: He's not, yeah, he's gone. Yeah, that makes me sad. Yeah, yeah.
2: I mean, how does your daughter, um, uh, Dakota, how does she remember him?
3: Oh, she remembers her dad so well. Just as a loving, doting dad, like... When she used to visit him in prison, she'd just lay over him and flop her little arms over his shoulders and he'd carry her around and he'd always worry about her brushing her teeth because he was fanatical on teeth. Um, make sure you're good to your mum because Carl was so respectful to his mum and dad. Respect mum, do what she asks you, do what you're told, go to bed on time, brush your teeth before bed, eat your veggies. You know things like that
2: if you could have your time again if you could um uh, if you could have your marriage again, do you think you'd do some things differently?
3: yep, I'd say let's go overseas and live a normal life and leave this all behind
2: and do you do you think he'd have gone for it?
3: Oh, he was kind of he was wanting to go, I was the one holding him back
2: how were you how were you holding him back?
3: like my kids were here. Was I going to be able to take them with me? Their dad was here. You know, so much to think about when you've got children to other people. It was hard. Yeah.
2: So you've lived a pretty wild life.
3: Yeah, to say the least.
2: Um, What would you say that you've learned about life?
3: Crime doesn't pay. You always get caught no matter how long it takes. You'll get caught in the end. The money's not worth it to lose all your loved ones. Don't think all the glam and glitz and all the rest of it to do with this lifestyle is fun because it's not fun at all when your husband's being murdered or put in prison for the rest of his life and your kids are the ones who are suffering and so are you. It's not worth it, not worth it at all.
2: What about what what do you think you've learned about death?
3: That life's very valuable. Take each moment and value it, treasure it, and make lots of memories because you just don't know. Talk
2: to me about how you live these days.
3: We just live a basic life with the, my kids. I live basic life. I look after my grandson. I've got three, three grandchildren. I look after my grandson while my daughter works. I just live for my kids. Um, yeah, it's life's all about the kids.
2: What aspirations do you, do you have for yourself? Do you have any things that you'd, you'd like to get done?
3: Yep, I'd really, really like to help troubled youth. That's my dream. So I'd like to go into juvenile justice centres and talk to the girls and boys in there and just tell them my story, where I am in life now and why I got there, and let them know that, you know, sometimes all the crime in the world and all the money you make from the crime doesn't make you happy um, all it does is end in misery, and if you weigh up the amount of money you make from the crime you committed, you could earn that money in less time working a normal job.
2: I've got one more question for you. So, so you described Carl as as the one before, like he was your one, um, and you know you guys had a had a great love. So. For for all of the people listening to this, what advice would you have for couples out there to create a partnership that um, that they'll cherish as as much as you cherished yours?
3: Believe in them and be there for them, and you'll have the best relationship ever.
2: I think that's simple, beautiful advice. Thanks. I do, and I and I think it checks out.
3: Thanks, Julian. Yeah, that's what I believe.
2: Well, look, I've loved this. I've asked. All the questions i wanted to ask this has been amazing
3: thanks julian i appreciate it thank you thanks
2: hey remember how i said before that we're now a weekly show so tune in next week we've got another amazing story uh next week we are talking to one of the co-creators of the 1999 blockbuster the blair witch project um this guy his name's dan him and his mate they spent about forty thousand dollars making an indie film. Uh, and then it grossed 249 million at the box office and created a whole new aesthetic for, for horror movies and you know created a sort of worldwide phenomenon. So we're gonna unpack what that was like. That's next week. Check it out. If you've enjoyed today's episode and you're thinking, hey, I've got a story that's uh that's pretty cool. Something that could work for this show you know something interesting but surprising a little bit unique please get in touch hit me up i'm always looking for story suggestions or feedback or you know whatever you got i'm julian morgan's on instagram and morgan's julian on x and you know what we'd love you to follow the show you know the the follow button on whatever your podcast app is just press that we'll be eternally grateful and if you're on apple podcasts please leave us a review just a just a simple five stars should do it you don't even have to overthink it today's episode was produced by rachel Tuffery. it was edited and mixed by nicholas feliciano jimmy saunders did our theme music our cover art is by naomi lee Beveridge. and this whole thing has been a super real production